just in concept of what a print is. It's just imprinting something on somebody else. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 72nd episode of Pine Copper Line, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Line on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperline.com. We also have a Patreon page, where supporters toss a buck or two in our tip jar every month, and it helps keeping us bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get cool thank yous, like stickers and totes, so if that sounds like something you might be interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes. It's also just totally fine if you don't want to know more about that because times are tough and if you just want to listen to the show and enjoy what you hear, we just want you to do that too. Print friends, we are happy to tell you that after two years, Pine Copper Lime finally has merch available like stickers and totes and shirts and even little onesies with our logo. But we did not stop there. We're about printmaking because we're about good times. If you want a good print bun to confuse your friends and family this holiday season, head on over to Tee Public with the link in the show notes and check those out. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products for your creative practice since 1997. Products like Arnheim 1618, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill near the city of Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs. And our friend of the podcast and guest of episode number four, Miles Calvert, evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's new impressions contest, where they can produce work in every print medium. So, if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever kind of inky idea you can throw at it, then head over to speedballart.com, where you can pick up the start of your next edition. My guests this week are Becky Spruill and Olivia Richardson of the Radical Intersectional Printmakers Guild. Becky and Olivia are founding members of this new printmaking organization. We'll talk about each of their backgrounds and printmaking practices, unpack what the organization is and why it is a quote-unquote guild, as well as the impressions we leave on each other as the world of prints, and welcome everyone into the cause by saying out loud what we've all been thinking, paintings are just monotypes. Also, we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, and since then, they have been very busy. They have actually formed their interim board of founding members, which includes Olivia and Becky, of course, but as well, Casey Digg, Ruben Castillo, and Stephanie Alans, who you may remember from episode 30 of this podcast. They are in the process of writing their bylaws and looking for input from prospective members. So if you like what you hear here, make sure to check them out on their YouTube channel where they publish all of their meetings or get in touch with them through the link in the show notes. They'll be announcing their first member exhibition soon, so don't miss it. Now, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to shake things up with the Radical Intersectional Printmakers Guild. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Becky. How's it going? Hi, how are you? How are you? Good. Thank you for joining me. I know that we were doing coordination across three time zones to get this call to happen. <laughs> so I really appreciate both of your your flexibility and your enthusiasm and getting this to work. Well, thank you for having us also. I'm definitely excited to chat and to learn more about your project and your plans. I know that you just recently released another meeting, so things are in the works for you. But before we dive into what it is that you're building, would you both just let listeners know a little bit about yourselves, just sort of who you are, where you are, and what you do, so we know who we're talking with? So I was raised by, I like to say, a pack of 
rabid feminists. Yes. <laughs> in the South. Um, I'm from North Carolina and uh, I was raised by a single mom. So I spent a lot of time in less well-off neighborhoods. I'm an undergraduate from the University of North Carolina at Pembroke, and I got a dual major in sociology and art, which is kind of where my interest in the social realm Mm -hmm. and how art kind of fits into it came from. And then I went to graduate school at Kansas State University. So I'm a neurodiverse printmaker. I have some significant ADHD problems. They're primarily inattentive, and that's part of why I've kind of wanted to create a group that is more amenable to a variety of different outlooks and life experiences. I'm also mixed and bisexual and (laughs) just in general kind of at a bunch of different intersections in identity. And I felt like a lot of those identities possibly haven't been served to the best of their ability. And I knew other people kind of felt that same way. So, but that might be fast forwarding a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's beautiful. Yeah, beautiful groundwork for sure. My art practice focuses a lot on taking personal inner experiences and sort of amplifying them into community experiences, community-based conversations. So my most recent large body of work that is theoretically complete <laughs> is my large monsters which are all technically self-portraits but also portraits that become kind of agendered kind of a-identified and because of that I've been able to kind of talk about the way that viewing myself as less than ideal viewing myself as really and genuinely the unideal version of myself mm. and of all my identities I've really been able to develop conversations about that with other people through my artwork. And so that's kind of the focus that I tend to take there. I feel like I could do an entire other podcast talking about that. That sounds so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure to uh, to let people know where they can like find both your personal works as well before the end of the podcast uh, so people can know your artistic practice as well as your artistic societal organizational practice as well. All right. Well, I am from Woodbridge, Virginia, which is part of Northern Virginia. So that's the greater DMV area. So I grew up around a lot of art. I guess I should say arts plural. So not just art galleries and museums, but musicals, music, Mm. any kind of category of art under the sun. And both my parents, really my whole family has been very encouraging of the arts. My dad was a uh, music educator before becoming a lawyer, which is a big switch. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my grandpa was also a music educator. So art in general just is very prevalent in my life. Um, I'm also a former Girl Scout all 12 <laughs> years. So like social justice is very, and like community is very big, um, is a very big part of my identity and my mom was my leader as well as my sister my older sister's leader so I went to West Virginia University to get my BFA in printmaking and I also got a minor in art history and that's really where something I like to tell people is like I'm a big kind of like I wouldn't say planner but if once I've decided I'm doing something it's gonna happen Mm -hmm. so like in fifth grade my dad who's also a WVU alumni took me and my family to homecoming. I cannot tell you what year that was. But I saw the the Pride of West Virginia Mountaineer mm. marching band. And I immediately fell in love. And in fifth grade, I decided I'm going to West Virginia University. I'm going to be in marching band. Not just marching band, but drumline. And I'm going to major in fashion design. Amazing. Um, <laughs> and I did all of that except fashion design. I ended up in print which is kind of a lovely story. I was originally a photography major and I took an intro to lithography class because there the intro classes are litho and intaglio with Joseph Lupo. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life forever. Like drawing on my first print as everybody's is is absolute garbage. (laughs) Um, But I fell in love drawing on a stone and like the the process of it all and the chemistry of it all 
and just the community that like was fostered by the environment Joe provided, but also all the other students who I got to work with, like print seemed like a magical thing to me Mm -hmm. because of that experience. And I got to, I was first introduced to SGCI through Joe. And I also will never forget the first SGCI I went to was Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met very briefly. I'm sure he would not remember this if I brought it up to him, but Aaron Coleman. Um, And now I'm earning my, or pursuing, I guess, my BFA in printing at the U of A under him and Cerise Faden. Um, as well as trying to get a museum study certification, but we'll see if that happens. So it's just kind of like WVU and the print program there was kind of a catalyst for where I am now in yeah. regards to like printmaking. And my art is very like socially focused. It's usually events that have happened to me, kind of like Becky, events that happened to me that I'm trying to put out into the world. But the museum studies and art history side come in where I'm realizing it's not enough to just share my story. I have to up- uplift and share others because I am only one drop in the ocean. So yeah, it's kind of, it's very vague, but we can, since we're dropping our socials and websites later, people will see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I actually just was talking to Joseph like just yesterday because he, he reached out just kind of about Pine Copper Lime and was telling me that, yeah, that I guess West Virginia University is waiving its application fees um, and asked if I could mention that on the podcast. And then I actually got my MA from University of Arizona in art history, the focus in printmaking. So I loved it. I loved Tucson so much. And then, of course, yeah, Aaron is... An, an alumni of, of Pine Copper Lime. So the this yes. small printmaking <laughs> world continues, like, yes. continues to do its work. So wonderful. Well, thank you both for, for giving that bit of background. And so now let us turn to the Radical Intersectional Printmakers Guild. And I would love you maybe just to dissect that name a little bit. Because I know from uh, your first meeting that I watched that it's a very intentional name and that every bit of it has some meaning, which helps sort of answer the question, what your goals are for this group? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So a lot of what comes into that name is a very, Olivia and I had a very conscious, intentional conversation about the value that gets placed on a name and the impression essentially, that a name carries. And so we chose specifically the words. So we started with radical, which is sort of relating to or affecting that fundamental nature of something, but it's also advocating for uh, thorough social change. And it's interesting because we've been asked a couple of times, why radical? Hmm. And what I think is really interesting is people have an innate kind of knee-jerk negative response in some cases, to that word, probably because of associations with certain other groups. But also there are a lot of radical groups that have been vilified throughout history with like a conscious, decisive, governmental often narrative when all they're doing is asking for equal rights, like the Black Panthers, for instance. Not that we're really creating a parallel between us and them, but they were basically just creating school programs for lunches and more, you know, specific things as well but in their inception they were merely just saying we're people too Mm -hmm. and that's essentially Mm -hmm. what we're kind of hearkening back to is that radical stance that people are all equally human beings and society should be able to reflect that and then of course we incorporated intersectional because we do believe in intersectionality the way that it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw and Intersectionality is essentially understanding individuals' identities as part of kind of a grid system. And it's funny because in one of our meetings, we were talking about what that really meant. There are some people who might have one intersection. There are people who might have two or three, or there are people like me who might as well be a roundabout, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of, saying that we're open to all of those intersections and then also the intersections between those identities interpersonally. It also goes into, besides just identity-wise, we get a lot of questions about who can join. And I mean that to say, like, if I'm not a printmaker outright, but maybe 
I'm a curator who specializes in prints. Is this for me? Or I'm an art historian who studies prints. Is this for me? So that, that intersection where print, it doesn't have to just be the physical making of prints, but any kind of... Yeah, in any real way. And, and it's also people who are at the intersection of print and the rest of the world. You know, yeah. making isn't something that's insular, which is often something that, you know, people expect it to be or mm-hmm. sometimes want it to be. It's something that hits the community. It's part of the community. I know a lot of printmakers, including myself, got involved in printmaking because multiples meant that they were cheaper to make, but also that you could give them to people for free without feeling bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) or you could plaster them on walls. And printmaking is that kind of agent for social change. And so it's really important to talk about that intersection between print and bigger, broader communities. Another like Joe-ism, I guess. <laughs> I'm probably going to gush about him a lot, but he really pushed the idea of print is everything. Mm. Printmaking is everything. So I really, I feel like this group kind of embodies that and I try my best to embody that as well. Mm. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think in his original context, maybe this is just the way I took it to mean we were talking about materiality. So mm-hmm. Printmaking doesn't have to be one of the like major processes. It could be putting water on the bottom of your feet and walking on a sidewalk and seeing that print happen and then it evaporates from the sun and you do it over again. Or it could be bleaching paper or shirts, something like that. But it's, I mean, you can also make the argument that paintings are just monotypes, but I feel like a lot of painters <laughs> would get mad at that. Um, so it's that idea of like physically and materiality, like material wise, it can be anything. It doesn't have to stick to the, the, the classics. And that's also talking to Becky's like, it's a cheaper option because you have like kitchen printmaking where you're finding that you're like, you're doing the potato stamp. So many people, when I mention that I'm a printmaker, they're like, oh, I did a potato stamp in like middle yeah. school. Yeah, that's I get cool. that too. Yeah. <laughs> I, which that's, I, that's a first. We never did that. I never knew about that. So that's really interesting to hear. But I think also just in concept of what a print is in concept, it's just imprinting something on somebody else. So that could be ideas, the sharing of ideas mm-hmm. and like someone walking away with maybe a shared idea or a story. I feel like it's, if you can validate it as a print, it can be a print. Like if you can explain to somebody what makes this printmaking, then it fits, it's adaptable. That's such an interesting concept, that idea of kind of ideas as print and multiplicity and distributing information can be a form of it. Reproduction and distribution of information um, you know, whether that information is a highly technical aquatint or your footprints on the sidewalk or an idea that people are people, it's all that kind of reproduction and distribution. So we've done radical, we've done intersectional. I think printmaker, I feel like we've addressed that too. Printmaking's everything, yeah. How about guild? So guild is something that we kind of stumbled upon initially because I think I made like a facetious little joke where I was just like we are the guild and and then Olivia was like well wait what does that what does that really mean and we looked into you know the actual meaning of it and it really is just any association of people that are working for their mutual aid um, and also the pursuit of a common goal and when we looked at that we were like oh yeah that's exactly what this is (laughs) we're exactly that we want to be able to support each other in a way that's mutually beneficial. It doesn't require any kind of self-sacrifice. It doesn't require any kind of competition necessarily. There's always room for healthy competition, but that competition would be, you know, geared towards making each other better instead of stealing opportunities or something like that, or even phrasing it that way or thinking of it that way. Also a uh, safer space to learn and learn from our mistakes, which Becky was really harping on, which I I agree with. Yeah, it's very important to both of us that we are a space where we encourage growth. And when I think about growth, I don't just think about the individual. I also think about community-based growth. I think about practice-based growth. I think about all of the many levels at which just coexisting as much as we can 
across kind of the universe without having that sense of it's me or them or it's us versus them without having that type of division. I think it's really, really beneficial to talk about growth where it's like we look at what someone else has and instead of saying, oh, I wish I could do that. I don't understand how that person does 25 things in a day. I only have the capacity to do three and then I have to go look at a bird for 25 minutes. <laughs> like, you know, instead of degrading ourselves, we can say, oh, I wonder how you do that. Why don't I talk to you about it? Why don't I, you know, ask for advice and see if these things kind of work for me and what you'll learn from that kind of thing is often like the way that I work is not a conventional way to work. I'm very much a person who, like I did a visiting artist workshop last year in fall, for example, and we did four projects in a week and that's who I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm very much a person that I spend a lot of time doing a bunch of different things and printmaking is perfect for that because we wheat pasted six foot tall hand printed monster impressions we also printed some very small one of my smallest plates in a chincolet um and it was just all these different things going on but then i would come you know if i were to compare myself to somebody who works more traditionally i would start to make myself feel bad right. but they might see the way that i work and say wow i wish i could just get everything done all in one week like a crazy person yeah <laughs> And we can kind of have that sh communication of working styles and ideas. Mm. I'm sorry about my dogs. Yeah. It's, it's a long tradition of dogs in the background on the Pine Copper Line podcast. <laughs> like, <laughs> printmakers have so many dogs. So your pups are in good yeah. company. <laughs> They're, they like attention, for sure. Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and one of the things I really liked about the use of the word guild is for me, it, it it feels like it's connecting printmaking to its deeply historical tradition of being radical. You know, I think about guild, I think about what Albrecht Durer might have been involved in. I think about, you know, something that might be in the 1500s when the printing press was used to translate the Bible from Latin into a common tongue for the first time and like nearly destroyed the Catholic church, you know, like, like it is like printmaking has always been radical because giving people information is forever a radical idea. So what I loved about it is that with Guild, it's, it has this, um, just, and maybe this is, this is not your intention, but at least as me as a, as a, as a print historian nerd receiving it, I just is like, I was like, Yes, like this is we as printmakers have been using printmaking to shake things up since someone first invented that technology. Absolutely. I think for me, at least it was probably subconscious because I, I often tell people the reason I got into print was or like the reason print is my medium and the art I make is because of what you just said, the radical nature of it and how it was used to resist. I also just love I didn't take it all the way back to like its history, and probably because it's founded by two black and brown individuals who wouldn't have been let anywhere near yes, <laughs> um, these presses or them. So I kind of love that idea of this kind of like, I know Hamilton's kind of like, it doesn't have the same meaning as it did when it came out, but mm. this idea of like putting brown and black people in the spot of old white masters, and well, I'm saying that in heavy quotes. Black femmes, too. I think yeah, that too. A really big integral part of this. Because from what I understand, there are a lot of print associations that throughout history have consciously excluded femme personas and femme mm -hmm. beings from the discourse. And this is also true in, you know, larger art history, but it's not often that femme presenting people would really get involved in this medium. And so I do think, you know, reclaiming that, not even just reclaiming it, but Continuing the narrative on the usage of that term, I think, is really important. And I'm really glad you brought that up because that isn't necessarily something that was at the forefront of our minds, you know. I do think it was subconscious, though. Yes, <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And even, yeah, when I was pontificating about that historical context, you know, that idea of definitely, though, making sure not to 
not to sugarcoat the past either, you know, and to be like, like, it was so great back then. Look at all these radical things they were doing. And it was like, well, their version of radical really bore no resemblance on ours <laughs> because yeah. things were just, were just different for sure. But, um, I love that context that you put it in of like, of like centering yourselves, um, and your bodies and your personas in this place that was exclusionary up until very, very, very recently in our histories. Now we sort of know, like, the story behind the name of the RIPG. How did it come about? How did you two know each other? What was the impetus for deciding to take on a kind of huge undertaking in the middle of a year that's already <laughs> asking a lot from us emotionally and energetically? The direct causation, we could say, it was after George Floyd's passing, there were a lot of kind of public letters being sent out by print organizations that were often they kind of felt like too little too late mm. um, mm-hmm. to be specific there was something that SGCI sent out that was very much inadequate and and you know criticized pretty publicly by a lot of people um, including ourselves and there was something about that moment where we were talking to each other and we had this kind of aha moment for you Olivia but it was for me where I realized that up until this point, I'd been advocating for representation. Like I was going to be the representation. I was going to be the brown, fat, Hispanic, <laughs> femme, mm. queer professor that showed my students that you can do this um, because representation does matter. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. moment was when I realized, oh, representation's not enough. We need to do things, some things for ourselves so that institutions that were never built for us can learn how to either restructure or to rebuild. And I also am just a very impatient person. (laughs) And so I've been going to SGCI and other print conferences for about five years. And there was a certain moment where I was just like, yeah, um, I don't want to wait for you guys to get with the program. (laughs) Mm. Maybe I'll just do this myself, you know, and it's not, necessarily just a critique of those specific programs it's more us having that kind of realization um, and I don't want to put words into your mouth Olivia but having that realization that some things you just have to do for yourself and that's something as marginalized individuals we often have to like ask ourselves are we going to suffer in these places that these spaces that are not meant for us or are we going to leave them and do what we need to do for ourselves? Which is an unfair position to be yeah. put in again and again. But at the end of the day, it, it is kind of bigger than like, we know that we are not the only two people who have had these like issues at these like conferences and workshops and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it wouldn't just be for us. It'd be for everybody who feels that way. Feel, who feel underserved by the existing community structures oh and also unheard because mm-hmm. there have been multiple and like you, you mentioned public criticizing of the the letters that they sent out but also you attending town hall meetings and I have also polled other students um because I've been I started college 2015 graduated 2019 and I started grad school 2019 so I've just I've been a student in these spaces mm-hmm. since I started going and talking to other students about how affordable it is or how unaffordable it is truly and how it isn't these things aren't really geared towards students like it it doesn't just have to do with identity it is again that intersection of people who aren't at the top just being underserved and not heard um, and then getting tired I'm also a very impatient person Um, (laughs) and just not wanting to wait around for someone to do right by you Mm-hmm. Um, and what I was, what, the other thing I was going to say was going back to how we met, I believe it was Frogman's 2017? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. right. I don't know. Um, and I want to say no. it was the <laughs> first night or the second night. They usually do a um, open portfolio. So everybody in that week can meet each other and see each other's work um, and like start conversations. And I can't remember if one of our mutual friends like brought me over to Becky's table or if I just happened to wander over mm. on my own 
But I remember seeing these really rad little creatures who looked very sad um, and were very like gelatinous and blob-like and just like starting a conversation with you about them. And it kind of, kind of kicked off from there. I'd say. Turned into a lifelong Kiki basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, we, we met there and then um, I actually went over to Olivia's table, you know, how that kind of goes. Mm-hmm. And we started talking more and more about, you know, personal experiences. And we're also, because we're brown femme presenting people, we're part of the same whisper networks. Mm-hmm. And so we're aware of some of the failings of other faculty, other academic institutions, professional organizations, et cetera. And the more we kept hearing, the more we would kind of convene with each other and, and say things like, can you believe? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think at a certain point we stopped questioning it and we were just like, okay, great. Like another, another one of these fucking situations, you know? And also going back to your, your, it wasn't really a question, but your statement about how this kicked off in 2020, which has been a heck of a year. I think the culmination of everything that's happened this year, it was for me, Becky talked about her aha moment. For me, it was more of a that's it kind of moment. Like, <laughs> I've had enough. Yeah. And this is, I've been pushed over the edge. I've had it. Let's do something. Because, yeah, it's been just from the get, it's been a wild ride to say the least. So I, I, part of me honestly wonders if the whole world hadn't shut down because of a mass pandemic, both like COVID and the systemic killing of black and brown people. That's just been like super, like it's always happened, but super in the news right now. I'm not entirely sure this would have happened. Like, I don't know if RIPG would have happened. Mm-hmm. I, I think eventually, but um, I think it was just like a pressure cooker of events that just made it happen faster. Yeah, that makes sense that the events of 2020, which seems to be the common nomenclature to try and sum it up, although it feels so ineffectual to just say that, but the events <laughs> of 2020 sound like, yeah, they were actually more more of a catalyst than a hurdle to starting this, you know, and, and deciding that, that this is where you want to put your energies and your time. Plus, we had nothing but time at that moment, right. or at least I did. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, class was pretty much shut down and then it turned into summer. And yeah, so I had a lot more time yeah. at the beginning. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And probably I think like like a lot of us, just a, a lot, a lot more not wanting to sit on your hands. So it's not, you know, it, it's not like it's not like having a vacation or having a break where you're like, oh, I can, you know, this is great. I can do nothing like I I can only imagine that it must have had this feeling of I have this time and I have all of these energies and emotions and histories inside of me what am I going to do with it I also think it was a way for me closer to printmaking because Mm. um we went online we um our school was on spring break when everything shut down and they just told everyone don't come back and I eventually, like a month into the quarantine, I moved back home to Virginia and I was doing classes and everything from there. So I didn't have any access to print, really. Like I was working on two lithos right when it happened and I had to abandon them. I had to abandon like the shop and the people who were surrounding it and be told to try and make work. And like, so I felt super isolated from printmaking. So I think when Becky... Becky and I were already talking before all this happened. So then I think when an opportunity to be reconnected to like printmaking and the printmaking community, my, my brain was just like, absolutely. And I, I definitely agree with that because I've only been out of grad school for a year and a half ish. And so for me, when we, when we left graduate school, we moved back to North Carolina and I'm in a part of North Carolina where printmaking is not. Um, when you say that you're a printmaker, they go with, with like computers. I mean, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's kind of more of a dearth of that. And I also had to kind of abandon my most, the majority of my relationships with other printmakers were in the Midwest, um, with the exception of um, Brandon Sanderson, who was my, he's my print dad. Um <laughs> And so, you know, it was good to reconnect with him, but it felt in a lot of ways like I was sacrificing a lot of that community. And then I started to think, well, why 
<laughs> why should I have to do that? Why should I feel that way? Why is it that people don't know what printmaking is? And then right. we started kind of picking apart all of the ways in which people could get to know us and could get to have more opportunities and specifically see more printmakers in the world and understand what printmaking is and um, how there could be more opportunities for people who are like us who can't afford to pay for a residency or mm -hmm. move halfway across the state or well halfway across the country um, at the drop of a hat for a residency and that became like a really I think an impetus for me to really kind of dedicate a lot of my time to this yeah. um, plus Olivia's school so <laughs> I'm not expecting her <laughs> to put in that same like this is what I'm going to do you know sink her talents into it at the same mm. level you I feel like this is a really good opportunity to ask you both just to sort of explicitly state what are the goals of RIPG I feel like we've been kind of you know, skirting around it a little bit because we're talking about like the name and we're talking about your motivations, but you're putting all of this energy into it. We know what, we know your kind of motivations leading up, but what are you wanting to accomplish? What, like, what is your, your vision for printmaking and contemporary printmaking in 10 years? And what role did RIPG have in that? One of the kind of ways to talk about that is I, I really want to see inclusion from the beginning like inclusion from inception. I want people to think about each other more consciously in the art world and not in diversity kind of nomenclature where you're saying, well, we're not going to discriminate against you. Okay, that's great. Are you going to include me? Right. <laughs> not discriminating against me, including your two very different things. Um, and I want, you know, my, my perfect world... <laughs> personally would have inclusion at the forefront and growth as that undercurrent of inclusion where mm, Olivia and I were recently talking about this. There's a lot of people in the world who think that when their racism is pointed out, it's like a death sentence. Yeah. And it's really not. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation to become a better person, to learn something new. And it's the same with ableism. It's the same with really any kind of discriminatory implicit bias we're inviting you to analyze where that's coming from and to choose to be a better person and to grow and have more exposure to people who don't look like you and don't have your life experiences and i hope that we can create at least one place but hopefully more where people who might not feel encouraged by their professor who doesn't look like them or the other students at their prestigious art university who they happen to be the scholarship student and everybody else suddenly, you know, can afford all the materials for their class, but they can't. We're hoping to find a, a place or create a place really for them to have that sense of inclusion and for their voices to not just be heard, but to be valued almost implicitly at the same, in the same way that more contemporary straight white male mm -hmm. artists' voices are valued. And especially, I think that's my personal mission, but I also think it's really important to realize or, well, verbalize really, that RIPG is by members for members. So that's my personal kind of mission statement. But what I really hope for RIPG to become is something that reflects its membership because I might change in the next 10 years. I might have different expectations for myself and for other people. Gender might get even more complicated at which point, you know, which honestly I think it probably should. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at that point, you know, we're going to be using different terminology. We're going to be thinking of different ways to include different types of people. And I really hope that that will be built in that responsiveness, the um, fluidity to grow with the times because what we're seeing a lot recently is a bunch of old white institutions just kind of crumbling mm -hmm. because they don't know how to go online or they don't know how to interact with diverse people without making us feel like tokens or they don't know how to do fucking anything other than pay a white man to do something that a brown person's been doing for 25 years, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, <laughs> there's a lot of that kind of disintegration happening. And I'm hoping that this will, at the very least, give people an alternative direction to kind of put their energy into. I kind of set out with the goal of RPG being to prove to a lot of white people, a lot of older white printmakers, that printmakers like Becky and I and so many other people do exist. I was at a uh, conference that was like the Midwest-ish area, and it was suggested that there a lot like we just aren't there. Like the reason a lot of these opportunities aren't going to black and brown people is because they're just not in print. And I know anytime I go to something like that or print classrooms or anything, the first thing I do when I walk in is I count how many people are like me. Just which is because as we're talking about intersections, there's probably so many more, but just like the face value ones. And it's usually me or me and one other person. And I know that's not true from going to workshops and conferences and just the people I've met on the internet and through other friends. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of, for me, that's how it started. But once Becky and I started talking about it, my goal kind of shifted to be something that doesn't exist yet. All of these institutions are crumbling because it's just, this isn't that era anymore. So I'd love for it to be something that is inclusive and diverse from the get like there's no oh we have to add this for you or rearrange things because it wasn't built for you we want it i want it to be built for everyone so no one walks in and has to look around and count they just walk in and feel like this is where they belong you know they don't have to ask like one of my biggest pet peeves is so i have multiple people in my life who are hearing impaired and the number of times that they've gone to events with me where they have to turn off their hearing aids because mm -hmm. either the music is too loud and like cacophonous and it's genuinely hurting them or they have to turn them super high up because they can't hear anybody because nobody's wearing a microphone. Like how can you have a demo where you know hundreds of people are going to it and not micro mic it up? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Or provide like translators, like sign exactly. interpreters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There's no accommodations made, which one is in violation of the ADA, but also regardless of the legality of it, it's just fundamentally unfair. Mm -hmm. You know, It screams, you're not meant to be here. You are an afterthought, like or, you are not uh, our target audience. We didn't even know you were coming. We didn't know you existed. Right. And now you have yeah. to validate your own existence to me. Like I have my own invisible kind of disabilities and neurodiversities but people just pass that off as like oh you're quirky and you're fat <laughs> you know and I'm like well I, I like can't walk <laughs> so that's part of it um and also like I can't string thoughts together so <laughs> you know? um but it's also this it's mind-boggling to me how difficult people act like it is to be inclusive and to be considerate for five minutes of their time. You know, it doesn't take long for you to make a map saying this is how far it's going to be from this venue to this venue. Yeah. But the fact that it doesn't occur to you to do that shows me that you live in a world where you don't consider people who are in wheelchairs as valid human beings. And that's absolutely unacceptable. It's just fucking unacceptable. Like I can't process it and we're not we're not by any means perfect we are going to have moments where somebody might point out something for us like for instance it's taking us a very long time to figure out what to do for cc's on youtube mm -hmm. um oh my god it is not easy <laughs> yeah, it is very by hand or <laughs> for yeah. the three hour meetings or um i actually recently figured out that when I record to Zoom in, this is kind of irrelevant, but so you can cut it if you want. <laughs> but when I record to Zoom, it creates a transcript, which I figured out recently how to download that transcript and upload it to YouTube. And it's not a perfect transcript. It's based on what you know, the program hears, but we're learning slowly but surely like ways to make this quicker and make it more streamlined and efficient because we cared from the beginning, you know? <laughs> And it's not us having to go, oh, you exist too? What? <laughs> now what? You know? 
or us, you know, like I've, I've had moments where I've had to point out to people, hey, your programming is implicitly ableist and they will get defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, defensive is a big one. why, who does that serve? Mm-hmm. You know, does it just serve your ego, which I don't give a shit about? <laughs> or does it serve the people that you're sitting telling me you represent because like I'm probably never going to see you again you've already rubbed me the wrong way I don't ever really want to see you again because I'm a very confrontational person (laughs) and we can talk about what happened you know yeah and (laughs) you're not going to like the outcome but it's it's a really frustrating thing to see how often people would rather just not think about someone else people don't want to be held accountable for their actions or inactions Exactly. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And I would like for people I am, again, a confrontational person, but that's because I grew up in a family of women who are very, we're very direct. Yeah. <laughs> when we have a, we're like, hey, you remember that thing you did to me three weeks ago? Didn't realize it now, but that really upset me. <laughs> Let's talk about it, you know? Yeah. Something else Becky had said earlier about the goal of RIPG, the by members for members. I think it's also hard for either of us to know where this is going to go because we're only two people and we try to push this a lot. Like, yes, we call ourselves co-founding members because eventually we want to get to a point where this isn't about us. It's about the guild as a whole. So all of its members. And and like Becky said, like where this goes is going to be determined by the larger group, not just us. So I, what, like, we want to happen may or may not happen in in that, like, the exact thing we want to happen. I'm sure it'll still be inclusive and diverse and for everybody and a place to learn. But, like, how it takes shape is going to be kind of a surprise, which I'm very excited about. Definitely. And I don't know if you two mind for a second just talking shop really quick as content providers and accessibility. Because transcripts for the podcast has been a huge thing for me trying to find how to do it. That it doesn't cost $200 an episode to have a human do it accurately, but isn't like a robot. And it sounds like maybe you're looking for ways to get transcripts or closed captions as well. So should you come across that like that program or that reasonably priced service, I would... I would I would love it if you reached out and let me know because I've been looking for it and it's like particularly with printmaking because we have we use really specific words when we talk about it and so the robots yep. have no idea what to make out of lithotene <laughs> yeah. you know like it's just yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't work but it's it's something that does weigh heavy on me that I understand like with this audio platform that does cut out a lot of people so if yeah. you well, if you that- find the magic key yeah Yeah. absolutely pass it on but that's also in itself like I talked to people about how I finished my language requirement in high school early and I wanted to take um, American Sign Language and I remember multiple people telling me that I shouldn't take it because it wouldn't count towards a a college credit Hmm. which like this idea of taking something to, to like benefit yourself is wild to like I know it's capitalism like mm-hmm. obviously we we should try and want to do better and provide for our disabled like and- just friends just people in yeah. general because you shouldn't have to be friends with someone to care about yeah weird people don't like to be called disabled oh sorry it's okay. well I just meant disabled in general not just like hearing impaired like all the disabilities mm-hmm. you shouldn't care that's what I meant mm-hmm. um, but thank you for that clarification yes but yeah, just like how difficult it is to try and get the knowledge to be able to interact with all of these people. It's they make it very and I say they as like society and the mm-hmm. government and everything, make it extremely difficult for that to happen unless mm-hmm. you directly have somebody like that in your life. And I think it's it makes me so angry. Yeah, it's it's a saying in the um neurodiverse community and in the hearing impaired and deaf and a lot of disabled communities as well, that you're not the one who is disabled or impaired or thing wrong with you. 
what it is, is there's a society that exists that consciously decided continually to make things inaccessible to you. And there's no reason we have to have stairs, period. Mm -hmm. We could literally just have ramps everywhere, but we don't. Mm -hmm. Ramps would be safer Mm -hmm. for children, too. But nobody makes that argument. You know, it's one of those kinds of examples. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I Teaching sign language along with English or whatever language you're learning in your schools from like kindergarten or preschool onward. Like that would be so helpful instead of it being a specialty language that you should only take if in the event that someone like that is in your life. So, Well, and even when you somebody like that in your life it's very difficult to be able to find free classes on it because my nephew is hearing impaired and my sister for a very long time she just had to rent books from the library because she couldn't afford his hearing aids and being able to go to a class to learn ASL to teach him ASL so interesting because the area the schools by the not the schools but the programs by me where I was growing up maybe this is because it's the DMV as opposed to North Carolina but they had a bunch of programs for people, but if you didn't have somebody affected directly in your like personal life, you couldn't take it. Mm. Like they're free for you, but if you, because I, I was even like, what if I paid for it? Like I'm not trying to go for free. I understand that, and they're like, no, it's not for you. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, it does seem like like that. That the economics of it are so often the hurdles. You know, like trying to get the, the transcripts for this podcast. Like if I had. an episode so that's $800 a month then I could make PCL oh my gosh like as accessible as I wanted it to be you know like or at least when it comes to helping people who are hearing impaired and then I'd probably need more do you know to to address uh, you know any kind of like accessibility barrier that I perceived so but it's it's just the amount of money let alone time that it takes is significant it really is for sure kind of like in this in this sort of camp of of inclusivity and accessibility you know you're building your organization from the ground up with these ideas in your forefront of your mind what would you like to see other printmaking organizations do like and I know that this sort of like this isn't your job but like but (laughs) if you have this platform right now which is which does get listened to a lot of people in the print community if you just want to say look you if you just did this one thing it would be better is there anything like that you want to say on that I think the biggest thing is to stop deflecting Mm, it's not helping anybody it makes you look really really bad (laughs) Like it, it's a waste of your energy. It really genuinely is. It would be faster, simpler, and more correct for you to just apologize. Yeah. You know, and and mean it. Apologize exactly. and mean it. <laughs> exactly. And give demonstrable actual action mm-hmm. that you are going to take to remedy the problem. Also, probably changing a lot of the way that bylaws are structured, the way that a lot of thing I've kind of noticed in other print organizations is they're kind of tacked on over time. And maybe there's something in the local laws for nonprofits that I'm not aware of. But it seems kind of odd to just keep tacking on more and more committees instead of just possibly readdressing what the board of directors are supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it also seems very weird to have things like committees on diversity that don't have the ability to vote. Why would you have that committee if they're not able to actually contribute to institutional change? It's just even further than that. I would say members being allowed to vote because I know some of them it's like it's chosen for you and your vote is merely like a nicety like no matter what you vote it's already been decided mm-hmm. it's kind of more of a like popular like how do we feel about this and if the majority feel like we hate this decision it's like well that's too bad here you go so like actually letting your members vote and participate and decide what they want instead of a bunch of people in a room mm-hmm. who are pretty in my opinion not all of them but a vast majority pretty out of touch with the future of print or even the present the print present 
um, I feel like a lot of them are living in the good old days. Right. Um, yes. And they're all so. quite homogenous as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think another thing is to consider what you really think a diversity hire is. Um, mm-hmm. Pay people for their labor. And then, you know, be transparent. I don't know why you feel the need to have secrets. I yeah. genuinely do. We it's, haven't gotten to that point of incorporation, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. It's because, you know, it, secrets equal hierarchy, equals power, equals, you know, protection, I guess, in someone's mind. I have no idea, but I know exactly what you mean. So let people know how they can get involved in RIPG. I know you've had a couple of meetings online. You had your first meeting and second meeting are both available on YouTube for anyone who wants to kind of follow up and sort of see what they missed if they're being introduced to what you're doing for the first time. But moving forward, you know, when people hear this and they're like, yes, this is this, they are playing my song. I want to be involved. I want to help. I want to be involved in an organization that's like taking these ideas on in the contemporary printmaking world. What is the best way for them to go do that? We have several different platforms. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at RI Print Guild, or you could send us an email and join our mailing list. Our email address is riprintguild at gmail.com. Um, you can also check out our YouTube. Whenever you join our mailing list, we will send you um, a link to our YouTube channel. And then we also, well, I actually today uploaded a YouTube video of our legal meeting mm-hmm. that happened just last weekend. Um, and so if you wanted to look at that as well, and then today, a little while earlier, I also started promoting, um, we're doing our first voting session for all members. Um, we're having every potential prospective member who wants to fill out a kind of response form for the, I don't know if this will be relevant when the podcast comes out, (laughs) but they're going to be um, filling out that kind of voting form on Google Forms for our mission statement and whether or not they feel served by it and any kinds of suggestions they may or may not have. Um, And also whether or not it will translate well, because I know institutional jargon does not always translate Mm. to real sentences in other languages. <laughs> so things like that, definitely reach out to us through Instagram or through our email and feel free to look at our YouTube. Beautiful. Also, we're any- checking the comment section of our YouTube. So if you, um, if we t- discuss something in those videos, which pra- praise yourself, especially for the first one, it's like three hours long. <laughs> we had a lot to talk about and they're slowly getting shorter, but they're still like a couple hours long. Um, but yeah, if something comes up in that in the video that you like a question is raised and you want to respond or you want to ask us a question, um, the comment section is perfectly fine for that. And that's kind of why we wanted to do videos as well, because we don't a lot of meetings and things get discussed where people can't actually access them. So this was our solution for how can we reach as many people for as long as possible. So, yes, yeah. And our most recent two videos involve our really awesome team of volunteers who um, are definitely helping us expediate this process mm, quite absolutely. a bit. Expedite, that's the correct word, expedite. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really been helpful too. So you'll get to kind of see them and um, we'll also start promoting them a little bit on our, our social media so you know who we're made up of, what we're made of, like a giant human goulash that's terrifying (laughs) (laughs) it's like now we are marketing yeah (laughs) well also we with every member who eventually joins um which we're calling them volunteers they're absolutely members we just Mm -hmm. legally can't have them yet because we're not incorporated yet right something like that um yeah we can't accept membership donations yet um, until we are legally incorporated. Otherwise, one individual member would have to claim that on their taxes, and we're not going to anybody. Yeah. Uh, so they absolutely are members, but right now they're being called volunteers, which they also are. But we, we plan to 
promote every member eventually when, once we get them because yeah. I think that's an, for me that's another part of like 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 you said representation matters and that visibility like who and also the um, the transparency of like who we are so mm-hmm. if there's somebody in that group who is harmful to mul- multiple mm-hmm. people you can look on our Instagram see who's a part of it let us know we can do something about it yeah because I feel like with a lot of the groups currently it's kind of you only know about their either their featured member or their mm-hmm. board members and that's it mm-hmm. like everybody else is just a kind of nebulous idea yeah. that's like part of these organizations so it's, it's very yeah. important to us to also just promote people because again if you're a student you're not maybe getting the same kind of like recognition or advertisement as a professional in the field or a um a uh, someone who's like affiliated with a university or something like that yeah. so yeah and i i also want to kind of emphasize that the next six months are going to be kind of a crucial time for participation um in the formation of the guild so our general plan is to kind of be at the, it's an ambitious plan, <laughs> but we're hoping to be at the incorporation stage in the early months of next year mm-hmm. um, so we can start accepting membership fees. But before we can do that, we have to establish our bylaws and we want to make sure that potential members get to weigh in on each section of the bylaws as we form- formulate them. So definitely start looking out for that kind of stuff for us yeah. if you'd like to join our group. Or from us. Well, I'll definitely put links in the show notes to to all of it. And yeah, no, I just, I I admire so much the work that you both are doing and the intentionality that you're taking to it and the willingness to do it to the best of your abilities and receive feedback at the same time. Because that, that is, I think, one of the big stumbling blocks for people which we talked about before is this this sort of reactionary like but I'm doing the best that I can you know like when you get called out or when you get feedback like as if that's supposed to be this shield that holds up and is like you can't criticize me I'm trying and it sounds like you have a lot of opportunities in place for feedback and for learning and growing in real time as you're building something which is is it is a wonderful undertaking and I'm, I'm really excited to see what comes of it well thank you so much yeah i'm also excited to see what comes of it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> me too <laughs> and you know it that reminds me of one thing that my mom always says um there's a difference between an explanation and an excuse mm-hmm. we Absolutely. both have a good handle on the difference between those two <laughs> Yeah. And then where can people find your individual work, your individual prints? I am on Instagram. So it's the Daily Grind Press mm-hmm. on Instagram, all lowercase. And then my website is oliviarichardsonart.com, which be kind, it's still under construction. Um, but it absolutely has work up that you can go check out. Yeah. And it's also linked on my Instagram. Beautiful. And uh, for me, you could follow me on Instagram at Becky Prince. It's not spelled how it sounds. It's um, at B-E-C-C-I Prince. And I'm not one of the website gang Uh kind of members. (laughs) So I do have one, but it's very, very old. It's Becky Sproul dot wixsite.com slash becky prints so if you want to you know look at some old prints <laughs> there's your archive yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah beautiful well thank you both so much for, for the work that you're doing and for for taking um an hour out of your evening to talk with me and i'm really excited to to share this conversation with everyone absolutely thank you so much for the opportunity yeah thank you for listening to us ramble it was was great i i really felt like i i like there was so much that i wanted to like say in response but i was like we're not getting coffees you're interviewing these two great people like you know like i just there's just so much in there that we touched on about like inclusivity and diversity and 
um, and the old guard of printmaking, which like, oh, don't get me started, you know. Um, so it's yeah. just, yeah, there's just so much in there, and um, and I really think it would be great to to have you both on again um, in maybe six months a year when you're starting to see the the fruits of your labors and and kind of re-examine that that process. And I really meant what I was saying about like I'm. I'm so, um, I admire so much the way that you're undertaking this and I'm hoping that it can inspire other people to think this way when they go about building something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be fantastic to kind of touch base in that time frame. And we really do appreciate that it's, it's not easy to think about other people all the time, mm. and, but it's still important. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's... Like if I if I wanted to like have like a campaign slogan for 2020, maybe that could be it in one phrase. Like it's not it's not easy all the time, but it doesn't mean that you you get off the hook from trying to, you know. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Lizette Chavez of Holy Press and Show Me Your Print Shop. We'll talk about death, grief, life and how all of them intersect within art. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.